0: You're listening to The Digital Economist, a speaker series where we talk to global action leaders on the most urgent topics and challenges we face today in climate, health, society, and economics. I'm Arvinder Singh, a technology entrepreneur, and along with our founder, Navroop Sahadev, I'm sitting down with global leaders to talk about their journeys, how they envision the future, and how their work is creating an impact.
1: The Digital Economist is a global impact ecosystem focused on building insights, products, services, and programs toward human and planetary outcomes. Launched at Davos in conjunction with the 50th annual anniversary of the World Economic Forum, we are a multidisciplinary impact platform where ideas are born, nurtured, and implemented. To create a better, thriving world. I am Navroop Sahdev, and we believe that technology is an enabler, and our collective power to steer it towards human and planetary betterment is the most urgent need of the hour.
0: Hello, everyone, and. Welcome to another uh, episode in uh, the Digital Economist Speaker Series. Uh, The Digital Economist is an organization that generates actionable insights and builds products and services for a human-centered digital economy. The Digital Economist has launched the Speaker Series to drive radical collaboration between global action leaders uh, on the most urgent topics and challenges that we face today, and those are climate, health, society, and economics. Our guest today is uh, Sonia Bashir-Kabir, a very, very accomplished person. Sonia uh, is a technology investor uh, focusing on tech startups in the emerging markets of South Asia. Uh, Sonia began her career as a technology corporate professional and her journey led to her becoming a technology entrepreneur an angel investor and a technology philanthropist. Uh, Sonia is currently the founder of SPK Tech Ventures and SPK Foundation, not her not-for-profit entity which believes in empowering communities with technology. Tech Hubs is an innovation of SPK Foundation, and she's won a number of different awards. She's the winner of Microsoft uh, Founders Award of 2016, SDG Pioneer Award 2017, and top 10 awards of 2015. So I welcome Sonia.
1: Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here.
0: So Sonia, let's start with, you have had a very interesting career, uh, both in terms of the, the positions you worked on, and also in terms of the geography. If you may, you know, walk us through your journey, how it evolved and what were your motivations of going back to the roots and starting these these wonderful organizations?
1: Sure, sure. Um, So I I, I am from Bangladesh. I was born in Bangladesh and then I lived in Bangladesh and and England. And then after high school, I, I moved to Silicon Valley and that's where I lived for 20 years. Um, I did my undergraduate and my master's in the valley. I worked there for a Fortune 100 company. And um, then while I was in Silicon Valley, we, my husband, my family, my children, we were all there, right? And we, me and my husband, who is also from Bangladesh, had actually always wished to go back home, but we never agreed at the same time. When he was resi- ready, I was not ready. So finally, in 2005, we both were ready. Um, as our kids were go- getting older, we figured that if we don't do it now, it will be much harder later. And it we are both IT tech professionals and we both had the dream of taking whatever we saw happen in Silicon Valley. We saw the dot-com boom, we saw the rise of personal computing and we saw how, how empowered citizens could be with technology. And we saw the democratization of technology and it was a dream to bring this back, especially for me, it was, it was more a passion than a dream. And that is where um, in 2005, from uh, living 20 years in Silicon Valley, we, we moved back to Bangladesh. And when I came back to Bangladesh, it was, um, you know, it was very, very, very behind Silicon Valley because, as you can understand, a least developed country. Um, but we, we, you know, we were very passionate, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say that I'll share more with you as, as I share my story that we've come a very long way, and um, never a moment of regret. It's been the best, one of the best decisions of our lives, and we're very happy to be here and contributing to the tech industry in Bangladesh.
0: That's a wonderful story, and I would say a lot of diaspora and immigrants, when they move, there's always this nostalgia, but uh, I think one of the things that people struggle with is the lack of the ecosystem. And I think around 2005 to 2008, there was also the time, uh, you know, there wasn't probably that much of a tech ecosystem to start a company. What are the kind of things that you struggled with, you know, coming back when there was lack of tech ecosystem? And how did you overcome those?
1: That's actually a very good question. Because when we moved back, I figured that the best thing that I would like to do was say that... um, Uh, I would like to do some consulting for the, the banking sector in Bangladesh and for the private houses, right? Because I'm coming from Silicon Valley, I kind of see what technology can do. The biggest challenge we faced was that no one was ready to have any kind of consulting done because they didn't believe that technology could actually make a difference in their business so it was for me it was like back to the future because <laughs> it seemed like um you know i've come to a country where we with a lot of skill sets that is not ready to take it so so what i've seen is that from the time i moved to bangladesh and now we were not digitally literate and we've become digital literate and then you know digital readiness is not the same as digital literacy. So I think that in the last 15 years, that's the evolution that has happened in Bangladesh. We went from a nation that was uh, not really digitally literate at all to being digitally ready. And that's where my hope has been every despair has turned into hope because I now see that a country like ours with a demographic dividend has the next 20 years to make a difference before we lose our demographic dividend. And that's when I I couldn't be in Bangladesh in a better time than now to make sure that we not only democratize technology, but we democratize innovation.
0: That's great. And uh, I think, One of the things that I've found is there is a first mover advantage, but there are also first mover challenges. What were the challenges and what were the opportunities? You mentioned one opportunity, which was like, you know, it was, uh, it was the right time when you had a young population that was evolving and getting into tech. But what were the challenges and what were the other opportunities that you see as, you know, one of the first mover uh, people in that space?
1: The biggest challenge um, I, I faced was that the country, um, especially the private sector and even the government, was not really ready to embrace technology at the speed I was used to at Silicon Valley. right? Um, and, it, it, and it went a bit deeper than that. It was not just about embracing technology because it was cool. It was about believing in technology and that technology can help a country leapfrog um, and move from a least developed country to a digital um, you know digital economy or a middle economy um, so the challenges that I initially faced were were difficult and that is one of the reasons where I chose not to start my own venture or my own startup because I I had a very steep learning curve and I decided to work for companies so I worked for the biggest local si in Bangladesh and then from there I worked I worked work in Microsoft and in Dell and those actually helped me learn that even though my Microsoft had had the best of products, even though Dell had be the best of products, if the country was not ready to um, accept it, we could we could just, you know, keep on trying. So the phrase that culture eats strategy for breakfast was very much Something that came to life for me when I moved to Bangladesh because I'm so used to 20 years in Silicon Valley, right? I'm used to the fast pace. I'm used to any latest technology that rolls out, everybody just kind of jumps into it. And then I realized that no, I have to unlearn a lot of things that I've learned, go back a few years. But happy to say that 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 challenge now is is giving me a lot of hope because right now um, I, I'm. A, Currently, I'm a tech investor. I've been an angel investor since 2017. And I have investments in 25 tech startups. And I have seen 10x growth in three years in across the startups. So that's because I'm firstly, I'm early stage seed investor. And then secondly, the, the, the digital readiness has made citizens become aware of what technology can do. The government is aware technology can do. And now they're using technology to improve their life or to improve their livelihoods. And that's the change that I guess I've been waiting for 10 years in Bangladesh that I've seen now happen.
0: Uh, so once you, you, know, you decided you were in Microsoft leading the whole effort, uh, in, in that part of the world, and then you decided to jump, uh, you know, start as PK Ventures or, uh, you know, start, start on your own. So what was the segment of the market? Did you focus in the beginning? What is, was it B2G, B2B, or what is, was it B2C before you became an investor?
1: Um, so before I became an investor, when I was, you mean before I became a, a institutional investor, when I was an angel investor, I actually focused on B2B and B2C. B2G is a very big uh, play. And um, I, I think the startup needs, and you know, Bangladesh is a country with a population of 160 million people. So B2G is going to be a very big play, which I don't think our ecosystem has scaled at that level. So I was only B2C and uh, B2B. And then I focused on verticals that had a big um, addressable market. So the total addressable market or TAM had to be big. And in order for that, you had to choose verticals or, or industries that would affect citizens. So I chose five, and they were fintech because we, you know we have forty um, percent uh, of our population is unbanked. I chose um, agri tech because we have lots of farmers. That's the informal economy. They feed us. We don't import food. I chose health tech and um, edutech and Econ. And um, I'm happy to say that I started these in 2017 and COVID happened this year. The digital transformation that happened with COVID in three months in Bangladesh would not have happened in three years. And all my verticals, 50% of my portfolio is ed tech, health tech, um, fintech, tech, and um, e-commerce all of them post COVID have done phenomenally well. I mean, they, they couldn't control the way they were scaling. So it has COVID in one way has kind of taught the country, our country, especially in our part of the world, South Asia, that um, you know, digital is the future. And when you are stuck in, in a situation in your home, you can make your payments, you can go to school, you can see a doctor and you can get your food delivered. So these were things that were life-changing, and I think my next fund, which is an institutional fund, I will continue to focus on these sectors because there is a huge growth opportunity.
0: That is wonderful, that's wonderful to hear. So in Bangladesh, um, as an investor, uh, did you find uh, the kind of environment to, um, or this kind of infrastructure in place to act as an investor, right? Um, the laws supporting it and uh, you know what were the do you, did you have any challenges being an being an institutional investor within Bangladesh
1: so um, that's a very good question because you know we still till today we don't really have a proper VC culture right. Mm-hmm. So that's being built. I myself am trying to build that locally, trying to talk to regulators and get a license. So it was a very informal way. But luckily, because I lived in Silicon Valley, I worked for venture capitalists, I kind of had an idea of what an ideal... VC structure or ecosystem looks like. And when I did just my part of the working as an angel investor with startups, I kind of built, tried to build that. So till today, we don't have a very formal VC structure, but we've come a long way. And, and I think, um, as I said, I couldn't be in Bangladesh in a better time than now. We are getting our licenses and we're getting we're getting that structure we're changing the regulation we're changing um the policies so that foreign investment can come in and repatriation of funds is not a big task
0: let's let's talk about one of the interesting things i was looking at your profile i found and it's it's inspiring as well is uh your your organization you know the organization arm of the uh, of your venture And the rural tech hubs that it developed. For our audience, talk a little bit more about, you know, what the rural tech hubs were and how they operated and what was your motivation behind
1: it. Thank you. So, you know, we we are a country with a huge population, but we have demographic dividend. 50% of our population is under the age of 30. And we also have data dividend right because 160 million people imagine the amount of data you can be storing for any vertical education health fintech agri tech or e-commerce so um while i was working um in microsoft i realized that the digital literacy was very important for youth and especially for youth who are are not so privileged who are in rural areas because they cannot afford to go to these top English medium schools that give you computer lessons and teach you what technology can do. And that's where from Microsoft, we took an initiative while I was there to do provide digital literacy trainings uh, to youth outside of the capital city. So we partnered with an organization called CRI, which is a think tank, and they had a a platform called Young Bangla, which is that they used, they had membership from all over Bangladesh of youth in this platform. And we actually trained together with Microsoft and Young Bangla, we trained 20,000 people on digital literacy, just the basics. And then I realized that once you've given them training, it's really, nice you you give them a certificate they take pictures and you put it on social media but then what happens after that but then you know if that certificate just is is hanging on the shelf so that's when i i realized that i had quit micro i was uh, actually while i was in microsoft i realized that it's important for me personally it was my passion to do something where that certificate would lead to some kind of a um, end result that helps them monetize because they're all uh individual rural areas, they're all qualified, but they don't get jobs, right? It's very hard uh, in a population like ours to get jobs. So I thought of the concept of tech hubs, it's um, basically, it's not a new concept. In the Western world, you have these internet cafes, but my idea was to work on these youth who we trained and say, okay, I would invest uh, three or five laptops, a printer, a copier, a scanner, a projector, and a router. And give it to an individual who did very well in our digital literacy exams and said that they're ready. Um, train them to be trainers, and but hold them responsible for two things. One is they have to provide the connectivity, and they have to provide the place to host that tech hub. I'm giving the grant of the equipment, but they need the the place and the connectivity. And luckily, the, we found uh, Bangladesh is divided into 64 districts. We found 64 coordinators is what we call them who were willing to take this challenge. And we said, you would also have to have an assistant coordinator. So for each district, there were two people. We trained them and and you'll be happy to know that most we've we've trained them. They most of them have expanded themselves from five laptops to ten to fifteen to twenty because they've been training a pe- lot of people. And you know the villages are very underserved. Nobody really wants to go and invest in training them because the capital city or the major cities take away all the attention. And it's amazing how we've seen that these tech hubs are empowering rural youth and women in tech through technology to gain better services to have a better livelihood to do uh, to earn more money
0: that's wonderful they say you know give a man a fish and uh, you'll feed him for a day and I teach a man how to fish and you know you'll you'll feed them for, for life your next your institutional venture firm is it uh, you know is it going to be in Singapore yes Singapore so yes. how has your experience been running a you know venture firm in South Asia and you've talked a little bit about it you know but uh if you want to go more specific for people who are thinking the development is happening in that part of the world and they're they're thinking about the transition
1: So, yeah, I'll give you a little bit of a background why I chose to be a licensed venture capital fund manager from Singapore as opposed to Bangladesh. Firstly, there are two things, right? Um, Having funded startups in Bangladesh, I realized very quickly that raising up to half a million dollars locally is not a challenge for these startups. But as soon as you ask them to scale and raise up to a million dollars, that half a million threshold a million is extremely difficult and that's when I said I need to take the responsibility to be this bridge for them so that I can write them big ticket sizes so that they don't have to depend locally and that's that's what inspired me to to start um, my venture capital fund in Singapore and the reason I chose Singapore obviously Singapore is the hub of the financial world in in Asia but there was another reason why not Bangladesh because you know our country is not really um, it's actually underserved in the VC. World. South emerging South Asia is very underserved. And there is a reason it is underserved because success breeds success. We haven't had any unicorns. We don't have any stories that we can, you know, do rah-rah about. So no investor, investors are, are going to smell success and come there, right? So it's our job to lure them. And in order to lure them, we need to be able to pump more money into our startups and say, scale, become big and become visible. So that's what motivated me to be the Singapore, to get the Singapore fund. And then I know that locally, I would not have institutional VC support or high net worth individuals believe in this investing in startups because it's so new in our countries. Um, That's when I said Singapore would be a good place to raise funds because, you know, in Singapore, there are 2,000 family or over 2,000 family offices. A lot of wealth is there. They know how to be managing their wealth through startups. And that's where I think it's going to be a game changer.
0: We'll come back. Two more questions, but I want to take uh, you know one question from the audience. Uh, Kay- Katie has asked, "How do you create a value-driven growth in gig economy startups? What is the market opportunity, uh, Tam, for uh, tech-driven gig uh, economies?"
1: So the gig economy is actually changing right um, as we speak. So it was basically all those people who were available to do any job at any time. But now we're seeing that uh, some of the white collar are also becoming joining the gig force, right? It's because they're, they're, they are they they have not COVID has kind of changed the landscape and people are looking for any kind of job that they can do. Um, so if I understand the question, how do you create a value-driven growth? It's, I think in order to, create any value, one of the first things that needs to happen for the gig economy is that fintech really needs to take a formal shape. Because um, get making payments and gig workers are going to be doing any kind of job anywhere, any place, anytime. We're such a cash economy that it's very difficult to to transfer money. So a lot of the times people need access to cash on a daily or a weekly basis. So in order to create a value-driven economy, the first thing we will need to do is have a, a payment, a FinTech model, that works. And then secondly, build around the ecosystem of a digital economy, right? So that anybody can be part, you just plug and play, do whatever job is required, and then you grow. Um, The market opportunity or the TAM is huge because of the youth that we have, the youth population, and also a lot of people that have lost their jobs. I think there is a huge economy. uh, A gig economy is going to have a big, Play. It's something I'm personally very passionately looking at because I think we need to help them structure and grow. That's the next big wave that's coming. Um, and it is very, it's very—it's—it's really necessary to attract them into the job market. I and hope th- that answers right, the question.
0: Thank you. Thank you for answering that. I completely agree. I think the, the way we look at work is completely going to change. It was either way, you know, changing pre-COVID, but COVID, as you said, has become a catalyst for that change. And the change we are going to see, um, people are going to be so far, uh, you know, so much geographically distributed, and the need for having office spaces, and that's, that's, that's going to evolve for sure. Um, I want to ask uh, another question that has come from one of our EITs, our Entrepreneur in Training um, uh, participants. Uh, Anandita uh, and uh, Anandita asks, what advice do you give to women who are trying to break the stereotype and bring about change, especially in tech sector?
1: Thank you, Anandita. That's a, a very good question. I'm asked this a lot. And the first thing I, I draw from my experience, and I'll tell you, I grew up with two brothers. And I never had um, a doll in my life because I I was so busy keeping up with my brothers playing soccer and and, and volleyball. So one of the first things my advice to women would be that don't think you're a woman. Just think you're a human being. Don't ever think that you are less. Don't ever think that men are more. Think you're a human being and you know you are smart and you just play the game and, and pure performers always win. So if we can move that that um, barrier in our heads that, you know, I'm a woman, I'm vulnerable, uh, vulnerable, then you kind of, imp- you open up doors, some of the doors yourselves. So that's where I would say the first advice is that please f- don't bring gender into the game, bring performance into the game. And, and also I tell employers that don't hire women because they are women, because you have a affirmative action. Hire them because they're good, because we all want to compete with our on merit. We don't want any favors. And the day women, we, we we will all stand up and say, you know, I work in a man's world, right? Technology was very male driven. I competed with men to get whatever job I wanted. And I did get it. And then secondly, I've come into the venture capital world, which is again, another male dominated world. But I, forget that I'm a woman and that kind of gives me liberates me in a way that I feel that if I'm going to be good and I'm going to be very good and I'm going to compete with passion no one's going to stop me I will be invincible
0: yeah I think that you make an excellent point actually in the last company that we uh, you know last startup uh, that we started and we were all four male founders the very first employee we hired uh, you know was this uh, you know wonderful girl And uh, we didn't hire her because, you know, she was a woman, but because she was an Olympian. And so we had two competing, uh, you know, um, interviewees. One of them was technically a little bit more sound, but, uh, you know, we knew that the kind of commitment and grit that this person would bring would be far outweigh, you know, a little bit of tech advantage that the other person had. So I completely agree. I think employers need to look beyond the gender stereotype and look at people as humans and then, you know, just look at it in, in, in a sort of equal, 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 equal way when they're looking at candidates. Um, I think the follow-up question is connected. This comes from uh, Chidi Navago, who's uh, our, uh, one of our entrepreneurs in training. Uh, he asks, you currently sit on the board of Shakti Foundation for Disadvantaged Women. I'm curious what, uh, what is uh, personally your greatest accomplishment in your fight to help women and girls from disadvantaged communities to live a normal life?
1: So I'm happy to share this um, story, and this is why I think um, one of the reasons was I was recognized as one of the 10 global SDG pioneers by the United Nations Global Impact, is um, while I was in Microsoft, we decided, it was my personal passion that while we were training the youth, I also wanted to train women, and the government had these union development centers where there was each union development center UDC had one female employee and one male employee, or actually male entrepreneur, who were given the space and said, "Build your business around here." But you know, as 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 any government, it, it's they're so high level. They they kind of give you a computer and say, "I've given you training. Now you build your business." It's not that easy, right? You a woman from the villages, she can't just overnight build a business on technology, which which is so new. So we uh, so it was it was um, uh, my passion that saying, okay. I have a role with Shakti Foundation, which is really a microfinance um, uh, entity, right? They give small loans to women so that they can carry on their businesses. But those women all do businesses which are very typical agri or, or sewing or cooking. Um, and it was my passion and it still is to bring them into the tech space. And then I figured before my Microsoft role, I was in Dell and Dell as all of you, you know is hardware. And most of the times when we had any issue with a repair, it was always a call center. And now all of you know, you dial level one support is they read 20 questions and they refer you to level two and then level three is when somebody comes so I figured okay what if I train um, women so we took three and a half thousand women we trained them on on not digital literacy but on how to be a level one tech support sent a call person and we gave them a laptop and we said okay these are the spare a little bit of the spare parts that. It, what if, a, you know, if your level one support, what it is does, if your windows is not working, your system is frozen, you reboot, things like that. And so it, it was so amazing that we, we trained three and a half thousand women, but out of that a hundred women came forward. They actually took a loan to buy a few spare parts for the laptop. And then I connected them with Dell service centers and they were providing level one support from their villages, from their homes. And I still get goosebumps when I say that. But you know, these they are these are capable people who have never been given the opportunity. So that's why my focus is on rural, saying women and youth, just show them the money and then see how it that's our job. We need to open the tap for them, which I don't think we do enough of. So if that yeah. answers the question.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. It's so so great to hear. I think. Uh, It's the 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 building of the ecosystem becomes so important, especially when you're you know um, uh, when you when you're trying to break into a completely you know uh, new uh, domain and you know new world. Uh, And I think you're you're basically building an ecosystem where now people can evolve right once they start uh, you know once they start once they get a taste of what it feels like you know to get into these new ventures, they can evolve on themselves. So I think that that's a good segue to the next question, which is, uh, uh, and this one uh, comes from uh, Ranjini Shridharan, who's also, she's an entrepreneur, fintech entrepreneur and one of our EITs. Uh, Ranjini asks, how does culture play a role in creating entrepreneurial ecosystems in South Asia? And what, what is working and what can be improved?
1: Thank you. That is a bit of a tough question, but I will try my best to answer it. The cultural part is is a little tough, right? Because when you think of entrepreneurs and you think of women in our culture, um, we we haven't really uh, seen although our prime minister is a woman, but we still in our culturally, women are not expected to be the boss and the men are not expected to be home, taking care of kids and the cooking and the homework and laundry, right? So culturally there is that problem. And then that's what we see that those women who are, who kind of come out and break the barriers, they end up doing more work than they should be doing because they've got the housework that they're expected to do, the the children and the in-laws or whatever they do, plus their own passion Of being successful in their own rights. So culturally, we've seen a lot of women break these barriers and said, I will do both. So I think they get a raw end of the 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 raw deal, because they they end up doing more, but their passion and their love for the freedom of choice that they yes, they want to do it drives them, right. Um, So we're slowly so when you have the second generation come on from these kind of women, then it's much easier. The culture, uh, Culturally, you're accepting that the woman, le- woman can be a leader, woman can be financially independent. So we're seeing that the second generation has now come into play, which is good. The first generation, even a decade ago, it was very, very different. But right now it is there. Now the question comes, how do you get them from a traditional woman kind of business into a tech business, right? And that's where people like us need to say that, come on, you need to be in the tech space. One of the things I'd say is that in our part of the world, when you study, um, you know, we, we call it the metric and the intermediate, it's the 10th grade and the 12th grade exam. If you are, if you are a science student and you've given your 10th grade uh, finals and your 12th grade in the sciences, then you can continue on with the elect engineering and, and the medical degree. But if you are a student of economics or history or sociology in the 10th and 12th grade, you will not ever get a chance to go get an engineering degree or a math degree because you're tra- you've chosen your track. Now in the US, that's a very different case. I was a, an economics student and I went and got a bachelor of science degree because the United States allowed you to do that. You take a few ex- courses. So what happens is we, I am a co-founder of an organization called Bangladesh Women in Technology. One of the big things is my role was to go to fifth and sixth grade girls in schools and say STEM, study sciences, stay in the math course so that you don't get yourself out of the game by the time you finish 12th school 12th grade right and then we offered these things called internships where they'd come and spend a day with me it was just one day um externship sorry not internship it was just one day so that say look I, my job is not a rocket science. If I can do it, you can do it. And that kind of worked a lot because we saw that the women were understanding. So to encourage women to to be in the tech space, I think you have to kind of fear uh, that address the fear or break that fear of science and math. We can't do it. It's hard. And then and do that by showing in the end that if, yes, you've stayed the course. It, it's, if I can do it, you can do it. So, and then the second thing is giving them some practical experience. Like we give a lot of women two things we just finished, data digitizing. It's a very simple thing. You photocopy, you upload to the cloud and they're earning a lot of money. The other thing is we're teaching hundred women next week, how to make a video and edit the video on your mobile phone, because that's another thing that's going to be very interesting. So, so the two things, right? encourage young girls to study stem and secondly those who have come out the technology is just ubiquitous it's just an enabler you know you don't need to be a rocket scientist to have a tech startup or embrace technology so that's when we offer services and say come look at this you can do it others and so give them a taste of what technology can do it's not that hard
0: yeah and also i think the the, the, the ed tech space is evolving in a in a very different way. I have I uh, had a chance to teach uh, in a bootcamp long time ago and build its curriculum. And one of the things we saw is uh, you know we would take people from uh, generic degrees and you put them through you know very rigorous curriculums. At the end of it, uh, you know you will have them start with tech jobs. And now you know years later, I see them add on you know some of them are tech architects, some of them are Uh, you know, on a, you know, tech managers. So it seems like, you know, the, even the, the, the evolution of uh, uh, how you, you know, choose or how you get into tech that is evolving at a very fast pace as well. Um, I want to ask our next question. Uh, This comes from Maria um, and Maria is also one of our EITs. Uh, She asks, uh, you have, you've had plenty of initiatives for social empowerment through work. I wonder if there is still a mission you would like to embark on that is perhaps in the back of your mind waiting for the right time.
1: Thank you, I actually do. And I'll share what it is that I'm very passionate about the missing middle. The missing middle are the micro, small, and medium entrepreneurs who are too small for a commercial bank as a client and who are too big for uh, microfinance institutions like shokti foundation currently bangladesh has a digital uh, as a lending gap of 39 billion dollars if that gap was fulfilled we would move our gdp at least one percentage point now why do we have a a, a lending gap it's because 60 uh, you know 40% Uh, of the population is unbanked and they are the people who are driving the informal economy. So I think fintech has a big role to play, financial inclusion. Now, how do you suddenly get these non-banked or unbanked people to become bankable, right? That's where a Technology, I think I wanna be part of that has a big role to play. It's because right now, why aren't they being served? Because they have no credit history. People don't know what their KYC is. They're living in the villages. A bank doesn't want to take a risk of onboarding a client. And when you ask the villager that, can you open a bank account? The 21-page KYC kind of freezes that person. So what I'm I feel that fintech is going to come and be a game changer, where we will do alternative credit scores, we will provide digital lending, we will provide we will look at the informal way of how they operate with their money. For example, a microfinance is a very informal lending. Study that, build an algorithm to feed to the banks, so that there is a play here of doing alternative credit score. And that's, I think, my, my next future project will be evolving around something here where the missing middle are no longer missing. And they are the bulk of our economy where the digital lending gap is fulfilled, where FinTech comes in and makes a very uh, innovative way uh, or innovative solution to financial inclusion and also, um, you know, addressing the lending gap.
0: I think that's an interesting problem and uh, there might not be uh, what you call the data capital that exists in such rural communities, but I think there is the other aspect uh, that exists is the social capital. And I think it'll be an interesting play if a startup comes along and you know measures that social capital to find out Uh, You know how investable or uninvestable that particular startup or individual is. I think that also leads to our next question, which comes from one of our attendees, uh, Joel Hodroff. It's a little bit longer question, so I'll just read it to you. As a single example, food is an abundant renewable resource, while uh, global agribusiness is one of the most powerful industries on the planet. Uh, Only money or purchasing power is missing to match buyers and sellers across the globe so that each get more of what they want and need. Beyond cryptocurrencies, which have been ineffective at closing this gap, do you see any hopeful development in the money innovation or payment systems? So it ties to what we were talking before.
1: Yes, so I I will link this um, question to the answer I just gave that uh, the innovation that I see is in um, in bringing in the, uh, in bringing in in, um, digital lending through, alternative credit scores. But I also see uh, that in the payment systems or in the banks, I see that that uh, traditional role of a bank will also be evolving, right? So the question a lot of people ask is will banks die? Will fintechs rule? And uh, the way I see it, especially in our part of the world is imagine the bank as a ship and a fintech as a speedboat. A, a fintech can go to many places that the ship cannot because of the infrastructure. Like I just gave the example, right? A fintech can do digital lending and get clients onto the ship and say, okay, I've done your alternative credit score, and now you can become, um, you know, you can serve this client who was pretty much unbanked or unbankable. And I also see that the evolution of the payment systems or what's going to happen is people are, um, banks are gonna have to be semi-autonomous and then everything will be catering to the next generation Z or or the, the mobile first, mobile only generation, which will be 4 billion of the population. They will not use a computer or a laptop or a or a uh, tablet. They will only use their mobile phone and the banking will have to be done through the mobile phone. We're so used to our online banking through our computers. That's going to be changed. It's going to be voice activated. It's going, the bank will actually study We'll have an algorithm of the software to study the profile of the customer and suggest every morning that this is the kind of activity you want to be engaged in. So the payment system will evolve to be much bigger than what it is today. It will not just be about payments. It will have a component of lifestyle. And that's the future that I see of where this is going.
0: Thank you. Our next question comes from uh, Jeffrey DeMarco, who is one of our attendees, and he asks, in terms of digital literacy training, do private sector organizations see long-term payoff or more incentives are needed?
1: That's uh, actually an interesting question. So um, it's a mixed bag, to be, if I can be very honest, right? Those people who see, who have a direct role in technology, accelerating their business, do see the value. Um, and then the, the other, the, the challenge that we have is, and I'll be very honest with you, is even if private sector wants to train 1,000 women and they come to my foundation sometimes uh, and say, we want to give this training, can you do it? And I try to get these women together. They actually do want incentives, right? So they're so used to, because our system is such that firstly, Five years ago when you wanted to give, when there was a UN project and you needed to get 100 women somehow and give them this training to get your UN KPI done or any international KPI done, these women were not motivated to come for any kind of training. They were not even interested. But if you gave them per diem, you gave them lunch, and then you gave, and you said, then you know, and you gave them a, a very handsome per diem. Then they would come. So they didn't come for the training; they came for the incentives. And and I honestly think that those kind of trainings are not worth it. Meeting a KPI doesn't really lead to success. It's about KRI or your key results indicator. How what have you done with that training? You know, is it just up a, a certificate lost with with dust on the shelf, or has it led to some kind of an activity that has change the quality of the life of that person. So to answer this question, um, private sectors uh, do see the payoff. The problem is how do you get these, these people to take the training and to believe that this training will actually lead them to something uh, more meaningful? That's the challenge that we need to solve. That's the challenge that I solve on a personal basis because I'm not a big fan of paying money Plus, so first I'm investing in giving the training, and then I'm going to give money to the person to say, "Come and get trained." I have a problem with that I, because I'm trying to build the fire from within, saying, "I'm hungry for work, I'm hungry for training." Somebody's giving it to me for free. I need to go get it. Till we have that culture, people will not want to do self-improvement, right? And I did see a question earlier on where they they asked about um, upskill and reskill. I'm a big fan post-COVID of reskill because whatever you've learned, um, upskilling does not necessarily make you pivot. This is the year where you pivot, especially for the gig workers, right? So I think it's important to reskill, to learn a new skill, and then just add it to your uh, tool of of skills available.
0: That's an interesting insight. Uh, I always wondered, you know, if um, like one of the things that is of quite interest to me is like how do you preserve Uh, you know, um, sort of ethnic jobs while still being global citizen. And I think, uh, you know, how can you improve, uh, you know, upskilling and reskilling? This is an interesting, uh, you know, conversation and interesting insights that you shared. Um, We're going to ask you to, um, our next question is probably going to ask you to share your, you know, secret sauce. Uh, So, (laughs) Rong, who's one of our uh, EITs, she asks, every investor has his or her way of scoring a startup. Uh, what is your way? Uh, is is there any startup you don't want to invest, but invest in the end? What are the reasons you change your mind?
1: So I'll answer the last question first. Um, previously, I I I didn't think this way, but now I do, and this startup helped me think like this. So I'll I'll give you the story. There was this there was a startup that was chasing me to invest in them. And I was frankly speaking, not interested, right? So I, I said no politely, uh, but they kept coming back and they kept coming back and they actually got my funds. And I realized one thing that the kind of agility, the kind of grit and the kind of resilience this guy showed is is saying that I would, that's a horse I want to bet on because he gave up on giving up. And that's, a mantra for me now is like give up on giving up somebody says no be shameless go again go get them till you have them so there is no need to see one no doesn't change anything so it's important to to be um persistent and and shamelessly persistent it works
0: thank you uh, i think i'm gonna ask you another uh, follow-up question it just came to my mind I'm curious. Uh, what does an average, uh, you know, uh, seed um, uh, check looks like in in Bangladesh? I know in in America, for example, North America, typically varies. Most of the incubators varies anywhere between one hundred and you know thirty to one hundred and sixty to two hundred thousand uh, dollars. What is the typical seed investment check looks like? You know, in in South Asia,
1: I would say it's um, fifty thousand um, dollars. It was for me, or a little bit below. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. Our next question comes from Varun Singhi, who is also our EIT, uh, our Entrepreneur in Training. I'm
1: sorry. What uh, is EIT?
0: Our Entrepreneur in Training.
1: Okay. So we okay run, got yeah.
0: It. So uh, the digital economist. Sorry, I should have clarified this m- much no in the problem. beginning. Yeah, we run Entrepreneur in Training program, and we have these global uh, participants, twelve global participants from in a very highly competitive uh, selection process and uh, yeah, they're going through uh, the currently inaugural batch of our EIT program. So Varun asks, looking back, are there any indica- indications from childhood that foreshadowed your becoming an entrepreneur?
1: Hmm. Um, I don't know how to answer that question, but maybe I can share a few things and Varun, you'll have to kind of see if it answers your question or not. Um, firstly, I was always rebellious i never listened but that's what my mom said i was i never listened i was always kind of playing in the across the boundaries um but one of the things that i i did do which which doesn't come across in my professional career is i was um we have a national team in bangladesh so i was in the first um women's cricket national team so the first women who played cricket for a private club and then made it to the national team. I was in that and that actually shaped me in many ways. And I was also uh, in the the national volleyball team. So these two, I think sports kind of helped me realize two things that I think every entrepreneur should know. um, I feel first thing is you will lose. There is never ever a team that has always won. So failure is a part of success. And the second thing I learned was, <clears throat> even if it is your friend, when you're competing, there's no mercy. When you're on this other side, you forget who you are playing and you go for the kill. You, you play to win. You don't play to lose, right? So these are two things that probably helped shaped me. I honestly didn't know what, what I would be doing. Um, but I, Varun, that's the closest I can answer your question
0: thank you for that answer um uh, i think uh, i have two last questions um so joel uh, who's another entrepreneur in training from spain he asks what are your greatest misconceptions about investing in tech in south asia compared to other regions
1: what are mine or what are the well,
0: what are the greatest not not yours but you oh. are yeah what are the greatest misconceptions about investing in tech in south asia
1: Um, You know, I don't know if there are misconceptions. I think they don't know enough. Um, And as I said earlier, success breeds success. We haven't had any success story. Just to give you an example, India in 2010 had zero unicorns, Mm. but India in 2020 has 30 unicorns. On the flip side, India last year received $15 billion in VC funding. Bangladesh till today has received $300 million. So that's that if you look at that, right, why did India receive so much attention? Because they were successful. They were showing that their startups were able to scale across India. They were able to get people onto their app and make money. So as soon as you start making money, people chase you. Indian, that's what we say, that we, we, we love Indian startups because they're being chased by VCs. Sequoia has an office in India. Sequoia is the world's biggest VC, right? They have established legal presence in India. Why? Because they know that this is where success is going to be. So what do we need to do? We need to show success, right? We need to be in the game. We're not in the game. Once you're in the game, you will get people to back you. So in order to be in the game, we really need to have laser precision execution, deliver on our startups, show that we've got customer love, we've got a good product we have traction and then show some some results so that others can come and back us so the misconception it's it's just that we're underserved there's no really misconception and and we need to kind of be dancing in front of them which we haven't learned how to do but that's what i want to do now in my role with the startups is like come on but in order to dance in front of people you've got to have good moves right so that's what we're saying that have the right ingredients to be performing so that your lights on stage and you will be picked
0: i think that's a wonderful strategy and i think given the growth of your uh, you know uh, your startups uh, in in the past few months as you said would probably help uh, so my uh, second last question we'll have one last small question at the end is, uh, and this comes from Abidun, who's uh, who's one of our EITs. He asks, as a technology investor focusing on tech startups in emerging markets, uh, what are some policies you would recommend to provide solutions to digital divide in the emerging economy?
1: So, you know, some of the policies that are required is a, a point I had made earlier, that digital readiness is very important for any sophisticated solution to be embraced by citizens. So if you do not have connectivity nationwide, if people cannot access uh, the app on the smartphone very easily, why would they use it, right? So it's important for the ecosystem. And a lot of these tech startups that I'm working on don't have any debt. They don't have any big infrastructure spending. It's all intellectual property like edutech, fintech, health tech, agri- e-commerce. So when they're doing this, if an e-commerce customer in the remotest part of the village is unable to order a product online because of connectivity issues, that is a shame because we've got a customer that, that they, who, needs, who has a demand. We've got a startup that can provide the supply. We've got technology that can make that happen. We've got back-end payments integrated. We do not have connectivity the house of cards falls down, right? Because that is the basic ingredient. So connectivity and device are going to be the biggest things that policymakers need to make sure they, 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 they supply. We don't expect them to provide the device because that is something the individual can afford in our part of the world, GDP growth is huge. Everybody can afford a smartphone, the price has come down. But the connectivity has to be there, whether it's data, whether it's, it's fiber, that's the policy that I think all the governments should take and unite in saying that connectivity should be like air, in my opinion. It should be free to breathe, right? It should be everywhere because that's and you will see the power of what a citizen service can do.
0: Yeah, I think I completely agree with there. Um, so my last question is: What are the trends that are on top of your mind as in as a tech investor right now? You mentioned few of them, agri tech, fintech, but you know, for po- this post pandemic world, what are the trends that you are looking at? You know, what are the waves that you are seeing out
1: there? Um post-pandemic and also some of the, the IPOs that didn't do well, right? Like Uber and Lyft and WeWork and Airbnb, what happened in the pandemic? One of the things I'd say is that we've kind of gone to back to basics. It's like how my grandparents did business. I have uh, I have uh, a book. I want to sell it for a dollar. If you, if you pay me anything less, I won't sell it. But what happened with the customer acquisition, uh, play going on was like, I have a book. It's worth a dollar. I'll give you 50 cents. And then you pay me 50 cents in two years. Or, or, you know, it was like buying customer acquisition that Mm -hmm. has kind of fizzled And I'm very happy to see that, because that was destroying the market, right? Mm -hmm. That really, and we still have some, some effects of that. So the trend we're seeing now, and what VCs will see is like, how solid is your business? Is there customer love? Do you need to entice the customer or the cust- are you serving a customer's need? If a startup serves my need, I will not need to be enticed. So I think a startup, what does a startup do? It solves a problem. So the trend is solve a problem for the masses, disrupt with technology and have a transformative impact.
0: Yeah, thank you. I think there was this trend of how, how big a valuation you can become. And a lot of that was like how big your customer base can be even at the cost of acquiring the customer is huge in the beginning. Uh, And it worked for some of the, you know, some of the larger organizations. But yeah, I'm I'm glad that post-pandemic, some of that is going away because it was definitely...
1: And then if I can add, the VCs have said, you know what, I'm not the Gates Foundation. I want return on investment. I'm not a charity. So if you take my money, you need to show me the return on investment very quickly. So these trends are are going to be now they've come to stay because the market has corrected, and, and that's when I think it's time for the pure performers to go there and compete and kill it.
0: Well, thank you so much, Sonia. It has been great talking to you, and uh, you know you taking the time on a Saturday to share with us, you know all the learnings that you have uh, working in that part of the world, learn, you know working in South Asia, and you know building. Uh, a completely new type of businesses, uh, you know. So we, we greatly appreciate you, you know, coming to our, our talk series. And we hope that this conversation will continue in the future.
1: Um, Thank you. I am truly grateful for the opportunity and for all the, all the, uh, the people who've asked questions. I hope I've answered it. Otherwise, you, I, I'm on LinkedIn. You can always reach out to me. Um, and I'm very, very grateful. Thank you so much for hosting me. It was amazing.
0: Well, thank you. And for our attendees, uh, you know, I would like to remind that uh, you know on our website, we regularly publish uh, our Center of Excellence, uh, publishes papers on variety of these, these topics uh, related to economics, future of work, and other topics that are going to affect the future of this digital economy. You can also visit our uh, digitaleconomist.com speaker series to look at our upcoming you know, talks and our upcoming uh, speakers. Uh, you can follow us on social media. You can also provide us any feedback that you may have at info at thedigitaleconomist.com. And finally, you can also, if you have a speaker that you would like to nominate, you can do so uh, by reaching out to us on our email or on our social media. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you all for uh, joining us on the Saturday. Um, to uh you know to attend this wonderful conversation and we thank uh, Sonia again and thank you all for attending and uh see you in uh, in the future so thank you thank
1: you very much bye- bye